Bible and join us this morning. We are in the book of Daniel. Make your way to chapter 12. Sunday mornings, we're working verse by verse through the book of Daniel, and this morning we kind of journey into the final chapter of the book of Daniel, longing that God would take His Word and make it just real to us. So again, hoping you got a Bible and you're finding your way there. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you, page number on the screen, so you can get there rapidly. You can use an electronic device. One way or another, be there with us. Have the Word of God before you so that God could speak to you through His Word. We're inviting you here for that, those who are in our overflow, those online as well. Hey, just wanting to make sure that you feel fully invited in and encouraged. Hey, have have the Word of God before you. May it be that which speaks into your life this morning. So let's ask Him for that. Let's take a moment and cry out to God, to the work of the Holy Spirit, to teach us His ways. I'm going to leave, but I'm hoping you would pray as well. God, thank You for Your truth. We thank you that you give us what we need and show us what's happening and and direct our lives in a way that is altogether right. Lord, with that in mind, I think about just the, the weight and the wonder of your word and ask this morning that you'd help us to understand. Holy Spirit, would you come and just teach us? Would you be the one that tutors us, that helps us to understand so that we comprehend your truth, that we see what you're speaking to us, and that would be understood by us. But would you do something so much more? Would you apply it? Would you take it and speak to our lives? And that's a very distinctive and very personal application in the way that you would do that. I want to hear that. I pray that each of us would, that you would give us ears to hear what you're speaking to us today. We ask for help in that right now as we trust you in this and thank you for your good work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Coming soon. Hey, those two words, they kind of create a sense of expectation, right? I mean, if you see them somewhere, it's meant to tell you something that is coming. Sometimes maybe it would be a a restaurant and you'd kind of see a sign on the door, coming soon, and you know, hey, that's going to be something that's moving. That's going to be something that's going to be good. Other times it can be things that are negative. Let's say, hey, this is what's coming soon in the horizon and laying out for us things that are going to be there. Either way, there is a sense of expectation. There is a sense of recognizing that something's about to change, that something's about to happen that is going to be laid out for us, and we just need to see that. That's true in life, but I want to draw your attention to it here in Daniel chapter 12. I want to talk to you about times that are coming soon, seasons that God tells us about, and that's really where we are. Here in chapter 12, he begins to announce to us things that are coming upon the world and that are going to be coming, that have not happened yet. Hey, quick FYI, we're in Daniel 12 this morning, but it's not the beginning of this specific conversation. This specific conversation that Daniel is having with God began in chapter 10, in a place where he was interceding for his nation and God began to unpack for him incredible things, both things in, in the spiritual realm with angels and kind of their work in nations and demons and then taking us through history for the, the Jews and then landing where we were in our last study where if you were with us at the end of chapter 11, we saw the coming great tribulation, we saw the Antichrist and him who's gonna be coming on the scene and all of that's important because it takes us to this moment. Now, if that's new 
new information or you haven't been with us, we just want to tell you all of that's online, or you can get a CD or a DVD from us, and we'd love to have you do that so that it can kind of make sense as we jump into the middle of this conversation, but want to understand this specific part. Now, to that, I ought to just do this, because in one sense, we're talking timelines and kind of things the way that works, and so we did this a little bit in our last study where I kind of gave you a quick Prophecy 101, kind of gave you a quick timeline that would help you kind of hang your thoughts upon, let me quickly remind you of what that looks like. We think about where we are. If this is a timeline and you were to place yourself here, this is where we are right now in history. The next big prophetic thing that God says is coming on the horizon, I believe, is the rapture of the church, that Jesus is going to come back and, and take us home to be with him. How soon we are between th- here and then, that's a, that's, nobody knows. I mean, it could be really soon. We could have more space. Either way, it's really the next big moment. After the rapture of the church, we'll take the world into a season known as the tribulation. It's a seven-year period of time that God very specifically lays out here in Daniel, in the book of Revelation, and in other prophets just letting us know that these seven years of difficult space are going to come across the whole world. But you could divide that great tribulation into two parts of it because the great part of that tribulation, sometimes called the great tribulation, is only the last half of it, three and a half years. Again, some of that which we talked about last time. At the end of the tribulation, the world then moves into what's known as the millennium, a thousand years where Jesus is going to reign on the earth, and much that's given to us in the book of Revelation, but at the end of that thousand years, we move into eternity. So that's just kind of a quick timeline, a way that we want to just kind of move into it and think about it this morning. Now, it would be honest if I just quickly told you, not every Bible student who loves God and really believes Him and knows Jesus kind of sees it this way, doesn't also understand, hey, this is the way that that's going to work out. And you know what? At the end of the day, it's all going to pan out really good. We're going to be fine when we make it to heaven, and so that's really good, not worth an argument. That said, this is where I am, and I'm getting the one to teach this morning, so you get to hear me, and so I just want you to tell you, hey, this is my framework, and I believe it's a biblical framework. I believe it's really taking the Bible honestly and clearly, and so we're going to hang our hat there and try to figure that through. So that takes us back to this place where we need to kind of step into this, where God begins to announce to us things that are going to happen. Let's just read through the first part of it there. You have your Bibles, chapter 12, verse 1, gives it to us this way in verse 1, at that time. Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. At that time, in the midst of what we just talked about, where we've just walked through the great tribulation, we've thought about the Antichrist and all that's going to come, that's where we just landed at the end of chapter 12. And here he draws us in to see something that's a great, what we'll say it this way, is an angelic showdown. Well, let me explain. Well, first of all, understand who it is. It's Michael. That's who it lets us know. It says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince, the angel. The Bible lets us know that Michael is what sometimes we call an archangel, that there really does seem to be rankings in angel by both their just responsibility as well as their closeness to the Lord. And so we kind of see these archangels as those who are directly in God's presence. We have Gabriel and we have Michael. Those are the two that are named. And so they're laid out here. Michael's this archangel, this presence angel that is in God's presence, but he has a very specific responsibility. Again, it just tells us to us in the text. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. 
That's helpful. Uh, That's helpful for us just to quickly think through that Michael, part of his responsibility is to watch over and care for Israel. I want you just to hear that this morning. I want you to almost just feel the wonder and weight of that. It's not true for everybody, but I know for some of you, maybe even biblically, you have a concern for the nation of Israel. The Bible would call us to be those who pray for the peace of Jerusalem and have that heart. And so some of you do that, but sometimes it's almost an anxiety. It's like, man, it just seems like they're so just, always just on the edge of destruction. Understand this. Michael is watching out over them. That doesn't mean it's easy. The last 2,000 years have not been easy for the nation of Israel. But there is something here where he just says, hey, Michael is there, that he's one that kind of watches over that. So there's something there that speaks about a comfort. That said, this moment is different because you read it again and again, just kind of catching it. Verse one, at that time, Michael shall stand up. That's an interesting thought. What is it he's actually saying? What is he communicating? What does it mean that Michael's going to stand up? You know, if this is all we had, we would be like, I'm not sure exactly what it's speaking about, but it's not. I mean, Daniel gets this revelation, but then we get other passages that come alongside and add to that as the future begins to unfold specifically into the book of Revelation, and we know what's going to happen. This moment where Michael stands up, it's a moment where he stands up and drives Satan out of heaven. Yeah, that's exactly what he's speaking about to us. It's given to us in Revelation 12. Let me put part of that on the screen for you. Gives it to us this way. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, which is Satan. It'll name that for us in just a moment. The dragon and the dragon and his angels, or we would call them demons, fought, but they did not prevail, nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. So you just need to see it. There's going to be this angelic showdown, this kind of just between Michael and Satan, which, by the way, kind of quick FYI, they're kind of on the same level. Yet, quick, just worth understanding, Satan is not God's opposite. He really would like you to think so. Really is one of the big lies that he has that he wants you to think, you know, it's like God and Satan as if they're going toe-to-toe. Satan is an angel. He was an angel on the level of Michael, and he fell. And so if you want to think about it as authority or power, they're really on the same level. So it's kind of interesting to watch these two go head to head here, but that's the extent of Satan's power. Again, that's beyond our subject this morning, but it's worth just kind of quickly noting there. But here we're going to have this angelic battle where Michael and his angels are fighting against Satan and the demons. There's going to be a war that breaks out in heaven that's going to just be a a battle that's going to come to head to head. And it'll tell us in verse nine, so the great dragon, was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So Michael stands up, he he moves against this, and Satan and his angels, demons, are driven out, and he lets us know what that's going to look like for the world. He says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Hey, hold on to this thought, because I'm going to refer to it just in a moment, but I just want you to understand it. There's this moment where this is going to happen, where Satan's driven out of heaven, and he's going to be furious. He's going to have a furious wrath, but he's also going to know something. He's going to know that his time is very short. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it in a moment, but we need to kind of quickly kind of lay a few quick little biblical understandings because there is some reality here that might be helpful that sometimes goes against the way the culture sees it. 
First of all, you need to understand this. Satan, the devil, he is not in hell right now, nor is he or will he ever be over hell. That's not his responsibility. That's always the way it's portrayed in the cartoons, right? You know, you kind of see this picture of a Satan with the, you know, red horn, the, the, the horns and the pitchfork, and he's kind of like ruling over hell. But that's not where he is. The Bible tells us that's not where he is right now. He's not in hell right now. He's actually in heaven. Understand this, hell also is not going to be his domain where he controls it. It's actually his prison. He's actually the chief occupant who's imprisoned in hell that was created for him in many ways. And so it's not going to be a place that he's in charge of or rules over. He's actually, again, going to be placed there. But it's not where he is right now. He, today he's located in heaven, that that's where he is. Now that can be complicated, but think this through with me. Sometimes, again, we even have a very misunderstood idea of heaven. We, we think about heaven as if it's, you know, like up there, past that star, go left. I mean, as if it's a location. It's not. Heaven really is held out to us biblically more, think about it almost like a dimension. It's probably not a perfect understanding, but it's as close as my small brain can get to it. That when we think about the heavens, we're not talking about a place as much as almost a dimension. Put it to you differently. Like right now, this very moment, I'm betting in the heavens, there's angels in this room right now. Angels who are caring for, protecting, and watching over you and I. They minister to us. I'm certain it's there. Probably demons nearby as well. That's a heavenly realm that you and I are not getting to see right now, but it's entirely real. The Bible's really clear that that exists, and it's a part of that, that when we think about heaven, it's not just a space, but it's, it's as if another kind of layer behind everything. It's interesting because scientists tell us that they think there's up to 10 dimensions in many ways that kind of go across this, probably some realities in there that these things go deeper than where we are. So that's where he is. He's in this heavenly realm. But that's not where he's going to stay. He's going to be driven out. When? Well, it has not happened yet. It has not been a part of it. When will it happen? Well, that's actually a little bit of a debate. I mean, trying to think this through. I mean, we get this here. It's telling us in the text that Michael's going to stand up. He's going to be there. Let's kind of put back the timeline on the screen for a moment. Bible students actually kind of debate this one because there's not enough information given to us clearly. It could be that it happens during the abomination of desolation. If you've been with us, that's the halfway mark in the tribulation. It's a time when the Antichrist will make himself known to the world, and there are Bible students that think that's when it's going to happen. And again, because Revelation 12 lays it out in some of those realities. Others would say, no, it might happen at the beginning of the tribulation, that really when the Antichrist first moves in to deceive the world, that could be there. And there again, other good Bible students that land there. There's a third possibility, and just tell you right now, this is probably where I land, just as an opinion, because there's not enough information given to us, but some believe that this will happen at the moment of the rapture, that at the moment that Jesus comes back, meets us together in the clouds, and we join with him, it could be at that same moment that there's a number of things happening, both in the world and the heavens, and at that moment, Satan is driven out. I think about it this way, John MacArthur, in his commentary, simply said it this way, while it is impossible to be dogmatic, this ultimate battle between, you know, this, the Michael and Satan may be triggered by the rapture of the church, that it may be as we rise and that kind of signals just the, the, the times kind of moving into it, that Satan kind of is also kind of driven out of heaven at that point in time, landing on the earth. And again, that would be interesting because it told us what we just read in Revelation 12, that he's going to come down with a fury, 
and he's going to know. He's going to know his time is short. That's important because, please understand this, he actually doesn't know. Uh, if you and I were sitting down and we had to ask, like, when is Jesus coming back? Like, how much longer do we have? If we're answering honestly, we would say, I have no idea. Because the Bible's very clear. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Only the Father, right? I mean, that's what Jesus says. Well, that means you don't know. But can I tell you, it also means Satan doesn't know. He actually has no idea. He, he knows as much as you know. He's watching. He's waiting. He doesn't know how much longer he has. But when the rapture happens, and I believe he's driven out of heaven, he's going to know. I got seven years. I, only, I mean, he can read the Bible. I mean, he gets to hear us right now. He's not like he doesn't know. He, he's going to know he has a very short time left, and he's going to be furious. Well, again, that's kind of what's happening. So there's this kind of angelic showdown, this angelic smackdown that happens when Michael drives Satan out of heaven, and things are going to change. Now, that raises some questions, and I want to just kind of talk about this for a moment. Could this be that which would play itself into an alien lie. Now, I talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were here, but let me talk about it again, but let me be very, very clear. I'm kind of hopping on a soapbox right now. So this is not like a biblical thing. I mean, I can't tell you 100% that this is the way it's gonna happen because the Bible's not that clear. And so just hear me right now. When I'm just talking, this is just me and it's just kind of what I'm thinking. It may be true, it may not be true. It may go a different way, but I don't know how you process this whole thing. You live in Roswell. You get asked all the time about aliens. I don't know how you see aliens. More than that, it's something that's coming just in, in a bigger way in our world right now. Here's where I am. Um, when I think about aliens, you know, I, I have to be honest and say, first of all, the Bible never specifically addresses this. It never tells us aliens don't exist, nor does it tell us they do. So we have to be very clear that it's where the Bible is silent, we have to be like, well, this is opinion. And so good Bible students have different opinions. But here's where I am. For me, I don't believe that you and I would ever have interactions with aliens. I personally believe that if we were ever going to meet people from another planet, God would have spoken to us about it in his word. I mean, he who tells us these things, that's a big enough reality that I think it would have been referred to in the scriptures. On top of that, I personally don't believe it's possible for aliens to crash in Roswell and die. And I can tell you simply this, because death came from Adam and Eve. Death entered our world through Adam and Eve. I don't have any understanding how an alien would be somehow suffering from Adam and Eve's sin. Our culture is, our culture is that way. The world itself has been brought under the curse. But the, the, you know, to, to look at aliens, I, at least in my small mind, I just don't think it's true. Again, that's opinion. You can see it differently, and I totally give you leniency to do so. But if we believe that and we say, okay, then what is this whole thing that we call aliens? If we take this biblical worldview and what the Bible tells us and we place it on this, what would we say? Well, we'd say this. You know, the Bible is really clear. There are these interdimensional beings that seem to be able to appear and disappear, sometimes interact with people in ways that sometimes is absolutely weird even at times. And we would say those are angels and those are demons that they have interactions in our world, and they're, and they're very much a part of that. And, and so in that sense, it becomes kind of one of those places that for me and my small childlike mind, I personally think that much of this becomes that which would flow into that. Now again, I don't know where you are at this, but I just want you to think this through with me for a moment, part because you guys live in Roswell. I mean, if you've never kind of processed this through, you just need to. 
But also so you know, I mean, you guys probably already know, we live in a weird space and time, and in our government, in the stimulus bill that was recently passed, one of the things that are in there that has nothing to do with the stimulus was passed a requirement that by July 1st, the government dump and release all of its information that isn't classified about UFOs. And so some of you guys already know this, it's in the news, but somewhere in the next two or three weeks, there's going to be a big information dump where the world is going to talk more and more about this. And I don't know how you process it, but I want you to think it through at least a little bit biblically. See, I think about passages like the one that's there in Thessalonians, where Paul tells us the coming of the lawless one, which is the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and note, and note, lying wonders, like he lies. It lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception, which is still a lie, among those who perish, and God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. So it says, when the Antichrist shows up, he's going to lie. He's going to lie to the whole world, and then God's going to allow it to happen. There's going to be a strong delusion so that the entire world embraces the lie, and that's the biblical question. So what's the lie? Biblical answer, I don't honestly know. I mean, it could just be the Antichrist. It could be that he's going to pretend to be God, and it might be that, but it's also possible, again, because we're just, I'm still in my soapbox, still in my soapbox, um, could be an alien lie. The, the lie could be a lie that, they, that Satan will come and say, hey, we are aliens, and we are from another planet, and the whole world might buy into that. Interesting, when Jesus was talking about the end times, he said it this way, if anyone says to you, look here, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christ and pro- false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. They're going to lie to the world, but they'll deceive if possible even the elect. So Bible question again for you. Why will the elect not be able to be deceived? If the elect is speaking about us as believers, and I think it is, why is it that believers won't buy into the lie? Is it because Christians, by their nature of being in Christ, are kind of just inherently kind of just, just geared against being gullible to lies? Well, I'm going to say this really kindly, so don't be mad at me. But if this last year has proved anything, on both sides of the equation, Christians can be very gullible. I mean, sometimes it's like, man, I can't believe you just, really? You're going to post that on Facebook? You you didn't even read? You don't even know? I mean, mean, there's this weird place, and I just can tell you, I have not found Christians to be, you know, impossible to be deceived. So when I read this and it says, okay, if, if it was possible, it would deceive even the elect, how is it going to be impossible? Jim's opinion? because we're not going to be here. Uh, the reason we're not going to fall into the lie is because Jesus is going to come back and take us home. He's like, I had to take you guys out because like you guys would fall for it. You know, you guys would totally just, you know, buy into a lie and I am not going to let that happen. And so, I mean, again, it's just my personal place of, uh, of where that whole thing is. So again, just kind of laying it out. So here's what we do know. There's going to be this angelic smackdown. There's going to be this place where Satan is driven out of heaven. If heaven is not a location but a dimension, that means he's going to be visible in this realm. That the people of this world will see angels and they will see demons. Jim's personal opinion is that they're going to lie. As people are going to see them, they're not going to say, hey, we're, you know, I'm I'm Satan and and we're demons. They're going to say, we're aliens. 
we're from another planet. We're from another place. And it could be that that's going to really lead the world to part of the big lie. Will it happen that way? I don't know for certain, but it's worth your thinking about. Now, if I'm right, here's what I know. That's not going to happen until you and I are out of here. That's not going to happen. You know, we're not going to see it happen because Satan isn't going to be driven out of heaven until we're gone. So here's what I just want you to think through. You know, much that's happening in the world seems to be kind of prepping the course, like it's like really close to happening. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it has to happen this year. I mean, this whole Roswell thing, it's been like almost 75 years, right, since our Roswell incident. I mean, it's, it, it could go on another 75. But at the same moment, it feels like there's much in our world that would prep the world for a lie that so many people will believe in. Again, that's my personal opinion. Take it for whatever you want. I'll jump off my soapbox, and again, maybe we'll talk about this again some other time. But again, one of those things that's going to happen is something's going to happen in the heavenly realm where Satan is going to be driven out, where Michael is going to stand up, and no matter what it actually means, something that's supposed to be there is there is a sense of power here. There is a sense of victory that Michael is going to stand up, and things are going to change. Hasn't happened yet. It is coming. And part of that, again, he's giving you and I an understanding that that's coming. Well, right from that moment, something else happens. Go back and see it. Verse 1. We'll just start at the beginning. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. He says there's going to be a time of absolute extreme trouble. It's going to be a time that is the worst moment in human history ever. Now, Daniel gets this from the, from the angel who's talking to him here, but Jesus says the same thing to us. As he lays out in Matthew 24, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, quite honestly, depending on your knowledge of world history, this is either really terrifying or not terrifying enough. Because if you know something about history and you could think through, so what's the really worst things that have ever happened in our world, whether they be world wars or famines or, or, or plagues that have kind of come through, and Jesus looks on all that and says, it is nothing compared to what's coming. What is coming is worse than anything that has ever happened. It has never been this bad before. It has never been there. It's going to be the worst moment in human history. So, so when is that? When does it happen? Let's put it back on the timeline. We actually know that we're really talking about the Great Tribulation. Now, I won't go into it in all the detail, but we know that from Matthew 24, because Jesus lays this out right after the abomination of desolation, that place that marks the middle of the tribulation. So very specifically, he says that three and a half year period is the worst period in human history. Now, we could widen it and say it possibly includes a little bit of the tribulation starting three and a half years before that, but just to be very clear, it specifically speaks of this moment in history, that that space is coming that's going to be coming upon the world. So, question for you. Why do you need to know that? Why do you need to know that the worst period of human history is yet future for our world? If I'm right, and I think I am, you're never going to see it. From a bird's eye view, maybe. The rapture is going to happen before that. We're not going to be here. We're not, we're not appointed to that place of wrath, uh, Paul would tell us. We're not a part of that space. So it's not something that he's asking you to be prepared for or to endure. So why do you need to know it? 
Well, again, he tells us it is coming. It's worth us knowing just because of that. But maybe part of it is to make sure that we have a right worldview, that the way that we view the world will be this way. Now, I don't know where this lands for you, but I'm just going to tell you where it is for me. I did not grow up as a Christian. I did not grow up in the church. I didn't get saved between my junior and senior year in high school, right before being a senior. And so as God got a hold of my life, there were some radical things that happened. But part of what happened is I can still remember a bunch of world shifts, just the way I viewed the world. And, and beginning to see things biblically, it's like, I'm, I don't see the world the way that God sees the world. I mean, if you're just going to be honest with you, I mean, before I got saved, um, I really was kind of a full-on just kind of believing in just the evolution of mankind, kind of believing that we are going to get better and better and better. And I mean, I was a full-on Trekkie, okay? I mean, I was full-on like, hey, there's going to be a day we're going to solve world hunger and we're going to solve war. And, you know, if we just give us enough space. I mean, the, you know, we can do this, you know. I mean, mankind is, is, is going to grow in all of those things. And so one of the things that happened when I got saved is it's like, uh, you know, that's not the way it's going. The Bible isn't telling me that's where mankind is going. You know, instead of it getting like better and better and better, he's like, actually, the coming days, they're going to be the worst ever in human history. That the brokenness of sin, the brokenness of mankind has not even yet been fully unleashed upon our world. And when it happens, it's going to be altogether ugly. I mean, that was a shift for me. I mean, it was an honest shift. It's just the way I saw the world was entirely different. Now, let me just try to say this clearly, but just in a short way, that doesn't make me a pessimist or you to be a pessimist. He's not telling us that we look at our world and think everything's bad, that there's not any moments of grace or good. There is. We can look back over the last 2,000 years and we can see medical improvements. We can see things that are good. It's not that we look upon our world and think nothing ever is going to go good. No, we can. And God can meet us in moments of grace, but we also look upon it and think it is not going to fix itself. This world is never going to be fixed. War is going to last till the end. Famine is going to last till the end. Sickness is going to last till the end. We're looking at a world that isn't getting better and better, but ultimately is going to get as bad as it possibly can be. And that changes things. That changes the way that we see them. That changes the way that it kind of works there so we can look and say, hey, I get it. I mean, I, I see where this is going, and I think that's part of the idea. They were talking about this announcement of things coming that we're looking at a kind of a, sh a shift that's going to happen in the heavenlies, and then we're looking at this place where the world's going to get incredibly bad, and it's meant to shape the way we view things. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, he continues, and it goes to another part of the story. So let's go back and read it. We'll start at the beginning just to lay it in its context. Verse 1, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. As we're thinking about times that are coming on our world, we think about this time of extreme trouble, and then he draws us to resurrection, to see what's going to happen, and very specifically, two resurrections that are going to take place after this. Now, before we go there, let me just kind of point out one of the words that might be confusing in our English language. So we read it there in verse 2, and it says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Many? What do we mean many? This is one of the problems of language because it kind of shifts. 
when I say the word many there, it sounds like I'm saying some. You know, it might like, well, like many of those who are in the dust are going to wake, but not all of them. Like some of those who are in the dust of the earth are going to wake, but not all of them. But that's not the Hebrew word that's used here. It doesn't have the idea of a section of humanity, but a massive number. It's not many as if a portion, but like a number that seems almost impossible to count. Now, we could look upon it and think, well, that's true. If all of humanity is going to be in those resurrection, we're in the billions. Uh, I mean, it's like a lot of people. I mean, it's a lot, and that's kind of the idea, is many, I mean, massive resurrection that's going to be a part of that, and that's where he's drawing us. So many, well, there are two resurrections. The first is a resurrection of life, where he says there in verse 2, some to everlasting Yeah, there's going to be a resurrection that's coming, and there are those who, in that resurrection, are going to enter into a life that is everlasting. Who is that? Well, it just told us in the text. Go back to the end of verse 2, where he says, everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. It's speaking of those who are written in the book. What book? Well, we know. Huh? The Bible's really clear when we're talking about the book, specifically in this prophetic understanding, which the book of Revelation only unpacks more. It's Jesus's book. It's the Lamb's book of life, written from the foundation of the world. It gives it to us in Revelation 13 this way. They were written in the book of life of the Lamb, of Jesus, of him who died for us, who is slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, those who are a part of that, whose names are written in that book because they believe in Jesus, because they've, they've, they've embraced Christ, that they're a part of this resurrection, that if you're a follower of Jesus, your name is written in that book because you've believed in Jesus, which is absolutely incredible. Now, that's personal, that's for us, but we ought to be very clear For Daniel, he's not just looking at us, he's looking at the the nation of Israel themselves, and something's going to happen at this moment for Israel. Go back and read it. So right there in the middle of verse 2, it says, at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. At that moment in time, something's going to happen. At that moment in time, there's going to be an awakening among the Jewish people that they're going to turn and see Jesus. Now, there's much we could talk about here because Romans 11 talks about this, that right now blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We get raptured, and at that moment, something's going to happen. There's going to be a pouring out where where the, the, the nation of Israel will turn their eyes and embrace Christ, which they have not done right now. Of the peoples of the world, the Jewish people are some of the most hardened and and worldly people in the entire world. We could look upon Israel as a part of a beginning of a prophetic fulfillment, but it's not that they believe in Jesus. They do not. As a whole, they have rejected him, but that's about to change. Because it would give it to us in a number of passages. One of them there in Zechariah would tell us, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me, speaking of Jesus, whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. He says something that's going to happen. There's going to be this pouring out of grace and supplication, and as a whole, there's going to be this movement where for so many of them, not the entire Jewish nation, 
But all those whose names are written in the book of life, all those who believe on him are going to embrace him in a mass movement. It's going to be an incredible space. So we get a chance to see that when does all that kind of come to a head? Well, it really does happen at the end of the tribulation. Now, we know that for a lot of reasons, but again, because Revelation helps unpack that for us. Just giving you one of the passages there in Revelation 20. Since I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I don't have time to go into all this detail. We did Revelation a few years back, and so if you're needing this, you can go back into it. But very simply, this includes all of the redeemed. So all of us who know Jesus, we just came back with him riding on a white horse. And we've been given some power and responsibility. Corinthians tells us we get to be a part of this time of reigning and and seeing it there. But at this moment, all the Jews who believed in Jesus through the tribulation are resurrected. So we're already with Jesus. They're resurrected. All of us get our new bodies at this moment, and it becomes that first moment of resurrection, that place that is that first resurrection. So again, we could just kind of solidly say, hey, that happens right here. This place where there is this resurrection of everlasting life, where everybody that knows Jesus, everybody who's who's ever known him, who's ever believed upon him, whose names are written in the book of life, hey, there we are, and that's what's happening. Glorious moment, glorious moment. Now, again, maybe the timeline is a little confusing to you. That's fine. I just want to make sure you catch the most important part. It's life everlasting. It is life forever and ever and ever and ever, and it's a really good thing, but only for those who know Jesus because there is a second resurrection. Go back and see it again. Verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's a second resurrection, but this one's not a good one. This one is those who are resurrected from the dead, and they're going to move into everlasting contempt. That's an interesting word. It can mean horror or abhorrence. It's a terrible reality, and maybe just the simplest thing is to understand, hey, this lasts forever and ever and ever. That when we think about it this way, hell is forever. I mean, the terms are equal, right? Everlasting life, everlasting contempt. If everlasting life is everlasting life, then everlasting contempt is everlasting contempt. There is no purgatory. There is no kind of, you know, time done, and then you get to move, you know, kind of. This will last forever. This is a forever destiny. This is forever reality. Well, we know when it is. We know, again, because Revelation gives it to us. Daniel doesn't get the insight, but we know between these two, this some to everlasting life and some to shame, there's a thousand years. Everybody who doesn't know Jesus, they're resurrected at the second one. Again, I can give it to you in the book of Revelation. It says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished after the millennium. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. He says, everybody else is going to be resurrected in the second resurrection. How blessed you are if you're a part of the first one. How blessed you are if you're a part of that first resurrection because that second death will never touch you. It'll never be a part of your reality. But everybody who doesn't know Jesus, he goes on and says, that's the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, which is a New Testament term or a revelation term for hell. 
says that's where they're going, everybody that's there. So again, putting it on the timeline, that comes at the end of this thousand years, the second resurrection, but it's a sad one. It's a sad one where everybody comes before the throne of God and is judged for their sins and is, and is you know, committed into an everlasting shame and contempt. Well, again, that's the point. We, we get a chance to see this. We get a chance to see what's going. And again, maybe that, again, the timeline just lands for you and you get it. Maybe the timeline isn't helpful for you. The most important thing is you just feel it. There's two resurrections. One is everlasting life. And the other is an everlasting horror an everlasting abhorrence, an everlasting shame. It's going to be something that lasts forever, and, and, and he's calling us to recognize those things, that these things are what's coming. This is where our world is going. Now, if you get that, that'll take us to where we need to go because he gives us one more picture for us to see, one more thing that's coming. Verse 3 it says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Yeah, we get a picture here of an eternal shining, of a place of shining forever and ever. Now, we think about this, and maybe very simply, we're talking about heaven. We're talking about what's going to be in eternity. And in that sense, we begin to talk about things that the Bible talks about, like rewards that will be for believers into eternity, eternal joy, this eternal reflection, this ability to shine for Jesus even into eternity. Now, again, there's a lot behind that. Don't have time to give it to you all, but the simple reality is this. There is a difference, that there are ways that eternity is going to be impacted by the way we live, so that there are rewards for believers who have lived well in this life. Now, without spending a whole ton of time on that, can I just tell you, you want this. You absolutely want this. I mean, I need to say that because every now and then, probably from a sense of almost like this humility or trying to be humble, Christians would be like, I just want to get there. I don't, I, don't, I don't need a crown. I don't need a reward. I just need to be in heaven. You know, amen. Me too. You know, I mean, that's just really, really true. That said, if God wants to give it to you, you want it. There's not any kind of comparison. There's not any kind of uh, one-upmanship in heaven. That's not going to be any jealousy. But there is a sense that those who have lived well here will shine brightly there. And he gives us a sense that not true of everybody, but for those who have lived well in this space, their lives will still be kind of reflecting God's glory in a beautiful way in heaven. And without spending more time on it, I just want to tell you, you absolutely want this. So how do you get that? Well, he gives it to us. He tells us those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. Those who are wise, and it begins by those who, who see and know the world, and we could take it this way. Wisdom is, well, the book of Proverbs would tell us the beginning of wisdom is to fear God, to recognize that he's God. But wisdom ultimately kind of just lays out to this understanding that we know him. I love the way it gives it to us in Jeremiah. It says, let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. Because if you want to glory in something, then make sure it's in knowing me. That's true wisdom. That's life that says, okay, I recognize there is a God, and he's the God who is loving, he's judging, he's the only one that makes people right in this world. I totally believe that. That's what it's supposed to do. But that knowledge isn't supposed to mean just like an internal knowledge, but a knowledge that changes the way that you live so that he's calling us to be a part of seeing people saved, of seeing people, souls rescued. Or again, I just love the way it gives it to us. Just note it there in verse 3. 
Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Those who are part of seeing people turn to be right with God, who are made right with God, he says that's a shining that's going to last forever and ever. Now, maybe the important part right now that I just need to kind of make as clear as I can, God, help me to make it as clear as I need to. Real prophetic understanding does this. Real prophetic understanding, if you can see everything we're talking about this morning, the real thing that it does is it motivates us to be a part of saying, I don't want anybody to go there. I believe in an everlasting heaven, and I believe in an everlasting hell. Hell, I believe in a world that's about to be, get worse than it's ever been, ever. That belief isn't just something that's knowledge upon me so I can win a Bible trivia game. It's a, it's a place of saying I am motivated because of what I know is coming, and if I really am motivated, certainly my motivation will move me to be a part of seeing people rescued. John Corson said it this way in his commentary. He says, in light of what's happening prophetically, we should be motivated to be soul winners, to evangelize, to share the good news. Prophecy is not meant to titillate our curiosity. It is meant to motivate us to activity. He says, really, prophecy is not meant so we can go, man, I got the whole timeline, I can draw it all out, and I know when everything's happening. That's really not the point. It's really meant to be this place that's like, I get it. I know where we're going. I don't want anybody else to go there. I mean, as much as is upon me, I, I want to be a part of seeing people turn to righteousness because I know what's coming upon our world. It ought to get us that way, and we ought to be aiming like, that's what I want my life to count for. John Corson goes on to simply say it this way, true stars that will shine forever and ever are not Oscar winners or Super Bowl winners, but soul winners. Simply put, that which makes a life worth living it's not the awards or the acclaims that our world gives because those are trinkets that will go away. The real things that make life worth living, the stars worth shining, then in that sense is to be a part of this. I think about how Paul would say it this way very practically in Thessalonians. He says, for what is our hope, our joy, or our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? He says, what do we want to have? The rewards we want to have, the, the, the joy I want to have in heaven, it's you. I want to see you in heaven. I mean, that's what I really want. I want that more than I want other stuff. I mean, what I really want is to see you there. I mean, Paul says, that's my crown. That's my joy is that I know it's coming and I'm longing for you to be a part of it. And he's longing for that kind of heart. And that's exactly where this is meant to be for us, that there is a sense that that would be there. So let's come back and say it a different way. So we think about these things, we think about things that are coming upon our world, with this angelic showdown, this extreme trouble, these resurrections, and ultimately this eternal shining. Let's put them on the timeline that we've kind of used this morning. Maybe that would be helpful for somebody. This angelic showdown, it, I believe it's going to happen at that moment of the rapture, maybe one of the very next things on our prophetic horizon. That's going to take our world into the worst season that it's ever known into a time that is extreme trouble. But that's gonna very quickly move into two resurrections, one to life and one to everlasting shame. But then we move into eternity and those who got it, who, who get everything there, who are part of seeing people saved, that's gonna be what they have to shine for Jesus forever and ever. 
In other words, when we think about everything we're kind of talking about, what I need to say again is the real practical part or the main action point of everything we've said this morning is ultimately a desire to be one who would shine for Jesus. See, if I, if I haven't made that as clear as I should, if I haven't said that as clear as I need to, let me say it now. This is not meant for you just to understand. If you really see what's coming, it motivates you so that you would look upon this and say, you know what, I see where our world is going. And I believe it. There's a worldwide deception that's coming that Satan's going to foist on this world. I don't want people to be a part of it. There's a worst season our world has ever gone through, and I know it's coming. I don't want people to be a part of it, but maybe so much more. I know that there's a resurrection of life, and I know there's a resurrection of abhorrence. I believe it. And if I believe that in the way that God would call me to, it motivates me to say, I want to shine forever. I want to see people saved. I want to see people turn and know Jesus because these are the real things that are coming upon our world. It's a place that that's exactly what we would just look at and long for. I think about it this way. Jesus, when he was sharing all of us, said much the same thing in Matthew 24 where he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. So he's talking about the end times, talking about the you know, worst season ever that's going to come upon the world, which is what he's doing in Matthew 24. He says that this gospel is going to be preached to the whole world. Now, I don't believe Jesus gave us something here that would kind of rush his coming, like something like, I'm not going to come back to you guys to try to evangelize the whole world. I'm not, I don't think that's really the point of it. I think that would put it on us and not him. I do believe this kind of just lets us know this is what we're supposed to be doing until that point in time. Like this gospel is supposed to be going to the whole world. And it's going to be that way till the very end. And we should be a part of that. I think about it this way. Some of you are reading through the Bible with us in that daily Bible reading. And if so, you were there in Mark 16 and you came across the, the, just the layout of what we often call the Great Commission. When Jesus just simply said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He tells us, hey, that's what you and I are supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be doing that very thing, or to say it in a very simple way, go everyone, go everywhere, and tell everyone about Jesus. That's what he just simply said. Hey, everywhere you can, to anyone you can, tell them about Jesus. That was what Jesus gave us as he departed from this world and he rose into the heavens. That's the commission that he gave us that's supposed to last till the end. And this prophetic understanding, if it's rightly understood, only encourages that. That we become those who say, hey, I get it, <laughs> I see it, and I, and I, and I want to be those who, one who does that. Now, I don't know where this lands for you. Hey, some of you, this is where you are. Like, you've already figured this out, and you live your life in part this way, and I've come across this morning just to encourage you in what you're already doing. Hey, you know what? Save as many as you can. Tell as many people as you can about Jesus because the world is bad and it's going to get worse. And eternity, it's forever. Like, tell people about Jesus. And so that's what he's just told us in a way that would encourage that. But I also think maybe I am speaking to some who you are a follower of Jesus, but somehow this world has dulled us. It so easily happens. In that Matthew 24, right before that section where he told us to take the gospel into the whole world, he said, the love of many will grow cold. And some of us feel that, you know, almost feel that place, and yet he's challenging us in this moment to say, if you can see what's coming, you're going to be motivated. <laughs> you're going to be motivated to tell people about Jesus. You're going to be motivated to do that, and that's what I want you to get from this morning. 
Again, maybe you totally understand the timeline. Maybe you totally understand everything I said. Some of you are like, I don't understand a lot of that. But I do get this. I do understand that there's this angelic showdown coming. There's extreme trouble. There's a resurrection. And that motivates me to say, I want people to know Jesus because that's the only way out. It's the Lamb's Book of Life. It's only those who know Jesus who are going to enter into that eternal life, and we so long for that. And if that encourages you to be a part of that, however God would have you, then I think that's the main point, that it should stir this up in that. So one last thing, and we'll close here. You know, I get a chance to do that right now, and it definitely have said so throughout this morning, but let me say it really clearly. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're here right now, and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're in our overflow. Maybe you're watching online right now. And I just want to say it as clearly as I can. I know where this world is going. There's a deception that is coming. There's a brokenness, a, a, a worst season of human history that has ever happened in our world. And then there's going to be death and resurrection for everybody. And those who know Jesus will rise to everlasting life. And those who don't, it's an everlasting horror. And if you don't know Jesus, I want you to know Jesus. I just want to take this moment to say, hey, maybe this morning is your rescue. Maybe this morning God is telling you, because we know the answer to this, this everlasting life is only found in Jesus, right? It's the most well-known verse in the entire Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loves the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life you'll be a part of this resurrection of everlasting life. But the only way is to believe in Jesus. The only way is to have that. And if that's you this day, then today we're calling you to Jesus. We're telling you it's the only solution because the world is heading in a very certain direction. And today we just want to rescue you. We want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of, of just giving you that opportunity. So today we're inviting you to surrender your life to Jesus. So let's do this. If you haven't already done so, close your Bibles. And we're going to take a moment to pray. And in this moment of prayer, it's going to be a quiet moment. Um, Pastor Phil's going to play some music, and we're just going to let everybody just kind of quite pray quietly. It might be this moment that you don't know Jesus, and it's your moment to surrender. That right here and right now, you can take a moment just to cry out to God, like, I need that. I need to be saved, and, and, and ask for God to save you. There's no magic phrase or magic words. It's a way of asking him to save you, and we'd love to be a part of that. So you pray to him, and then after the service, come up and talk to us, and we'd love to walk alongside you and be a part of seeing your life turn to righteousness. You rescued from an everlasting abhorrence. If that's you this morning, again, we're going to give you this quiet moment and just ask you in this quiet moment to pray. But maybe for many of us, we know God, and that's, that's a good thing. Yet there is a sense of just allowing it to roll across us, and I don't know where that is. Maybe, again, it's just encouraging you to keep doing what you've been doing. Or maybe, like some of us, we'd have to say, you know what? If I really believed this, it would change me a little bit. I, I need to be one who is a part of telling people about Jesus. Anybody I can. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them that there's, a, that there's a hope and there's a way. And so just want to invite you, just between you and the Lord, talk to them about that, that you would aim yourself to be, I want to be one of those who shine, who have been a part of seeing people turn to everlasting righteousness. I, when heaven comes and all of the dust settles and we're on the other side of this, I don't want to be there and say, well, I made it, but I didn't know anybody. I mean, I wasn't a part of seeing anybody else get here. I want to be like Paul that would say, you're my joy. The, the people that I've been a part of being able to see them here, to see other people with me in heaven, that's what I'm longing for. And so quietly between you and the Lord, why don't you talk to him about that? I'll do the same.
and we'll close in worship in just a moment. God, thank you so much for your truth. Even as we step into this section that tells us of things that are coming, times that are coming upon our world. God, I just want to tell you I believe you. I thank you for the warnings. You've even letting us know of just that time where Satan's going to be driven out and just that deception that's going to fall on the world. I think about past that, the season of history that Jesus, you said, is going to be the worst that the world has ever known. And that terrifies me. And yet so much more past that everlasting resurrection. Some to life and some to an everlasting horror. God, I believe you. And yet I just long that it wouldn't just be a fact that I believe, but it would be what you would call it to be, that would motivate us to say, I, I want to be a part of the Great Commission. I want to be doing what you told us to do, just taking the gospel to the whole world telling anybody and everybody we can about you. God, would you stir that up in me? Would you stir that up in us? Would you grant us favor and opportunities to do so and boldness to do so? God, rescue people so that we could say our joy is to see them in heaven. Rescue people. As I ask for that, I pray very specifically for anyone who's listening to my voice right now and they're on the wrong side of this, that right now they're destined for an everlasting resurrection of horror and I want to see them rescued. Today, Lord, I just pray that you'd show them Jesus, that they'd recognize what they need is you, that Jesus, you came, you, you died for our sin, you became the one by your blood that would rescue us. Rescue these. Rescue these that don't know you. Today, would you be a part of just seeing them change? Lord, we cry out for that, and we cry out for it here, but then we take joy and just pray for it everywhere that's happening around our world today where anybody in any church building, uh, any missionary on the street, any Christian that's just sharing today, would you turn people to righteousness? We long for that, we pray for that, and we pray for more of that. We thank you for what you're doing and trust all of this now to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May God meet you in that and in that sense make it so that we fully become those who understand what's coming and live with wisdom in the midst of it. May it be so even for you today. If you have questions, come up and ask us afterwards. We'd love to be a part of it.